Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Tadas Vescanta, founder of Abnormal Returns and director of investor education at Ritholtz Wealth Management. For over 15 years, Tadas has been curating the best investing and financial related content from the web, from traditional news sources, blogs, podcasts, and more. He's maintained a disciplined long-term commitment to finding the best, most valuable material investors can learn from. Our conversation starts by talking to Tadas about his process for curation, what makes for a good article in his mind, how financial topics have changed since the great financial crisis, and why authenticity in writing is a key thing he looks for. We also touch on why content creation by advisors and asset managers is important, and why less might be more when it comes to the consumption of content during times of market volatility. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Tadas Vescanta. Hi, Tadas. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, glad to be here. We're looking forward to a good discussion around content, curation, what makes for a good timeless investing article. And hopefully we can get some of your thoughts on sort of the market environment as we work into this. Um, But as most investors know, there is a massive amount of information out there related to investing that's being produced on a daily basis. I think there are probably hundreds of news and information sites. You have obviously the big major ones, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, but then you have the hundreds of blogs and podcasts out there. And it's probably too much information for any investor to really try to digest and then trying to figure out what's important and what's not important is even another layer of complexity. And that is where I feel like your site, Abnormal Returns, really shines. And it, really what you've done in the past 15 years has been, in my opinion, a great service to um, many investors, both retail and professional. Um, so I wanted to just give you a, a minute or two to talk about what you've created at Abnormal Returns, your mission, and um, in terms of you know aggregating content and cat- categorizing content. And then we can get into some of this other stuff that we want to talk to you about. Well, certainly didn't start off as a mission. Um, you know, back when I started, things were very different in the investment blogosphere. And so uh, I just started off like everybody else, just kind of finding my way. And uh, after a while, I kind of found that, you know, when I first started, I thought I was going to be, you know, a freewheeling writer writing about all the topics of the day. And I quickly realized even back then that there were plenty of people who were doing, uh, doing that exact same thing. And so oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, you have an idea and somebody's already written about it and it's like, well, why write up the exact same thing? Or uh, so I, I quite quickly uh, pivoted, you know, in terms of, you know, in modern parlance to uh, kind of curation and really focusing on that and really trying to uh, find a way to bring the best of financial writing to a broader audience. And so, like I said, when I first started, it was uh, the blogosphere was very much nascent and um, the major publications really hadn't embraced the idea of uh, kind of blogging in terms of a form in terms of a form factor. And so uh, I guess in one respect, uh, I'm unique in that sense that I've kind of been able to see the transformation of the kind of the landscape go from traditional media to blogs 
to Twitter to whatever it is we have today. Yeah, that's it's that's an interesting sort of point that migration or how it's changed. And that's the next actually leads right into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is when we I don't know if you know this about us, but one of the things Validia used to do, this was between 98 and 2001, is we used to track the stock recommendations made in the financial media. So we were like doing what Holbert does for newsletters, but we were doing it on the on the on the recommendations in the financial press. So we had, at the time, we had amassed about 100,000 recommendations, stock recommendations that we were tracking. So we would read Barron, CNBC, all these major publications that were, you know, had stock picks in them. Um, back then, you know, there used to be Worth, Money Magazine, Individual Investor, Forbes even had investing columnists like Fisher and David Dremen in there. But a lot has changed over time. And I, I just was wondering, you know, what, as you think about, sort of the content investing content and what you've seen over the past 15 years you know what what are some of the major changes both i think good and bad that you've realized yeah no i think you you've definitely touched on one of them in the sense that the financial media was very much focused on stock picking and the personalities kind of surrounding those uh, those stock pickers and so i think that was very much the stock and trade of like you said the financial media and I think that was, and I think that was oftentimes the case of the sort of the um, the beginning of the blogosphere was also sort of that was kind of um, was a forum for that sort of um, content. And I think one of the big things that changed was, frankly, was the um, the great financial crisis. That you know you saw this huge macro event that essentially just kind of took the whole idea of stock picking and just kind of threw it out the window. When you have something like that that can so radically change the economy, the financial markets in sort of, it's not the blink of an eye, but over a very short period of time, um, I think the idea of focusing on stock picking sort of went to the kind of went to the back of the bus. And so everybody started focusing on the big macro trends, which is perfectly understandable. And I think that is sort of, trans I think that in a certain sense, sort of transformed how people thought about um, you know, blogs and writing about financial markets in general. And so, you know, the idea of picking a certain, you know, an individual stock sort of uh, looks a lot less important when, you know, the financial system is on the brink of, you know, collapse. And so uh, I think people started focusing on different things. And uh, I would think the other thing that sort of changed is that uh, I think, you know, I don't think you can sort of underestimate the effect that uh, Twitter has had on how people communicate and how people think about financial markets. And so I think a lot of what uh, sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, chatter has kind of um, moved over to Twitter and that has become, uh, you know, it's hard to think about financial markets without thinking about the impact of Twitter and how uh, it's really sort of part and parcel of the way people sort of communicate about markets today. I always thought Twitter was just taking what Raging Bull had and putting like Twitter on it. You know, Raging Bull was mostly like a message board for stocks, but it was the same concept. Um, really, it's just, you know, Twitter is just a broader, uh, you know, more broad in terms of the people that use it. So anyways. Well, yeah, no, I think I, I think certainly, you know, again, going back to the financial crisis, I mean, I think, again, you had that confluence of events where Twitter was there. And that was really a forum by which people, you know, uh, you know, not just people in the financial markets, but the media itself was communicating 
um, on a much, you know, the cycle had changed. You know, you're no longer talking about a daily sort of news cycle. You're talking about a news cycle that's happening on, you know, minute, you know, on the minute by minute or the hour by hour basis. So. I want to ask you about what goes into making a good article. You know, as, as someone who writes articles myself, one of the things I think about a lot is what, what are the components of a good article? You know, obviously a topic plays a role, but you read more probably good writers, good financial writers than anyone. And I'm wondering if you think there's some key components that go into creating a good article. Well, you know, I, I, I would love to say there's some sort of formula or there's some sort of checklist where you could, you know, just kind of check off the items that make for a great article. But I think it's really, I mean, I think it's really as unique as the writer. And so, you know, I think certainly I think the voice of the writer comes through, but I think the, I think the nature of that content can be whatever it is you want to make it. It could be it could be a pair, you know, it could be a short paragraph and a graph and that could be something that is impactful or it could be something like, you know, I think we're all familiar with Jesse Livermore's writing, you know, kind of this long form sort of really deep thinking. I mean, it could be something as short as, you know, short as a paragraph or as long as essentially a short book and so trying to say what is, what makes for great content is is really difficult i think it's as it's as unique as the writer them you know the the writer themselves one of the things i like to think about is whenever i'm looking at anything is sort of the process that goes into it and i think you have an interesting challenge here because you have many many articles coming at you from a lot of different directions and on a daily basis you have to figure out what the best articles were and sort of get get them into a format where you can deliver them to your readers. And I wonder if you could talk about the details behind that, how you look at taking all that information in and figuring out what the best articles of the day are. It's really, it's like, it's like drinking from a fire hose. I mean, you're really just kind of taking it in on a continual basis. And I think the, the, the you know, I would love to say that there's some sort of formula or there's some sort of approach that you could take where, you know, to make this sort of easier. I've certainly tried that over time. But I think the um, the magic, as it were, and that's maybe a, certainly an overstatement, is just comes from taking it all in and seeing where there are connections. And sometimes that's not always obvious. And you know, I think that's really the, the process by which it comes about. And so, um, you know, I think one of the things that is helpful to me is really being able to kind of structure it and think about it on a sort of a continual basis. And I think that's where the connections come in, and that's when Whenever I feel compelled to write something uh, kind of under my own uh, byline, that's really where I've found sort of, you know, uh, a handful of people talking about the same topic in different or interesting ways. And so that's, I think, where the, it's really about the connections. And so, you know, there's really, it's not, you know, I've never described abnormal returns as a news source because it's really, it's really not about the news. I, I would hope that somebody could take one of the daily posts and read them. Uh, a few days later or a week later and hopefully get something out of them um, in terms of a sense for what's happening or what might happen um, from one of those posts. And so, you know, it's, so in that regard, I hope, I you know, I certainly hope that it's not, um, I hope that it's not just news itself, um, if that's, if that's helpful at all. But I, like I said, you know, as, as things change, you have to kind of change with them. And so right now we have this sort of, uh, sort of a mini boom in, um, you know, people writing these Substack newsletters. And so, uh, you know, that, that wasn't really a thing, you know, a year or two ago. And that's something that, 
you know, I think we've, uh, that I've started to read, you know, obviously started to read more of. Do you ever feel like you have to cover a certain topic? So for instance, like what's going on with COVID-19 right now, or do you look at it from the perspective of whatever the best stuff that comes into me today is, is the stuff I'm going to publish? Or do you feel like certain issues that are, you know, high up in the news right now have to be at least represented? I, I think there, I think there's certainly an aspect to that. I think, um, you know, well, I, let me let me put it two ways. You know, for for example, politics is something that I try to steer largely to the side of, just because you know um, so much of it is you know just so difficult to parse on a short term basis. But COVID is, is a great example of something where you can't ignore it. I mean, it affects it affects quite literally every part of our lives um, from a personal perspective, from a professional perspective, from the economy to to really everything, and so. You know, you really can't, you can't, you, you, if you wanted to ignore it, you really couldn't because it's so impactful on, in so many different ways. And so, um, you know, I think just to take one step back, you know, like I said, it's, these are things that I find interesting. I may not necessarily agree with everything that I'm, I'm linking to, but it's certain, but it's certainly something that I think is of, of interest. And so maybe another topic, you know, that's certainly popped up in the last few months are, uh, are you know it's kind of this new wave of SPACs, and so that kind of touches on all sorts of different things, whether it be you know kind of the intersection of public and private markets, you know, talking about the the IPO process, talking about you know maybe sort of from a macro perspective, kind of is this sort of a situation of too much money looking for a home, and you know this is just sort of a opportunistic vehicle for people to put money to work. So that's one of those things where it's like you know this popped up in the last couple of months and. Uh, it's real again. It's sort of sort of hard to ignore, given um, uh, sort of the kind of the tentacles that it has in different parts of um, the financial market. You talked about SPACs. Is there are there any other topics that you think are, are there any topics that in general you think financial writers maybe pay too much attention to, or topics they pay a little too little attention to? Like for instance, you might be saying, Jack, if you write another article defending value investing, I'm never going to publish it again. Or are there certain things that we pay maybe too much or too little attention to? You know, I, 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 that would be hard for me to say because, frankly, uh, if it's something that is that I've seen too much of, then I probably there's probably some part of my brain that is just kind of, you know, just going to ignore it at, at a certain sense. And so, um, you know, it's, you know, I think from from that perspective, I think people, uh, people in the financial market should really write about those things about which they are interested in and passionate about and. Uh, they frankly shouldn't care what I what I think one way or another. You know that's really that's really for them to decide. And uh, because I might find something interesting or not, uh, or have may, or read to read it too many times, that's really uh, that that hopefully shouldn't be a factor in what anybody's thinking about writing about. One of the taglines that I think I've seen on your site is this forecast free since two thousand and five, something like that. Um, so to me, that kind of signals you know, that you don't really look too fondly at, you know, people making crazy forecasts and predict predictions, um, uh, you know, particularly binary ones that tend to be, you know, all in or maybe all out of the market, something like that. But you just want to maybe talk about why forecasts can be more of a disservice to investors um, that some, you know, they may want to be thinking about next time they hear some crazy market forecast or something about the economy or whatever. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a couple of points. One is I think I I think I landed on that tagline pretty early in the process, and I think it was a reaction to I think what we talked about a little bit earlier was this idea of people putting all these stock picks 
and recommendations out at the time. And it was really like, you know, that wasn't something I was interested in focusing on. And so from a second perspective, I think, you know, the things hopefully that um, I'm focusing on and the, the writers that I find interesting are really talking about process. And so, you know, every, every academic, I think just about every academic study of uh, financial market forecasters, economists find that, um, you know, frankly, they, you know, on average, they don't do a very good job. And so relying on that, relying on that sort of input as the basis for your investment process is going to, you know, it's going to lead you down uh, probably an unprofitable path. And so, so hopefully the things that I, that I focus on and are things that will help you, hopefully help you in kind of coming up with a process that works for you. And so I think one of the great things about the uh, investment blogosphere and kind of financial writing in general is that, um, you know, there are certainly a lot of different directions people can go in terms of building their own process. And, you know, it's not for me to say which one is correct or right. I think that really depends upon the individual and really finding a way that works for your personality and your own personal needs. And that could be, you know, that could be as simple as putting your money into a couple of index funds and checking on them every year and, you know, going about your business, or it could be something wholly different in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of a, a more active process, uh, you know, more high turnover, more active process. And so, you know, I think any, you know, I think we all could learn, you know, we all could learn a little bit more about focusing on trying to build better processes as opposed to trying to build better forecasts. One of the things I really like about abnormal returns is I have no idea based on reading it, what you actually think. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges all of us face today is, you know, the, all social media and everything tends to just drive things at us that agree with what we already believe. And, you know, that's, that's a problem I face with value investing as a believer in value. I, I need to spend time looking at the other side. And I'm wondering if you have tips for people in terms of how you go about publishing things and reading things and seeking things out that maybe disagree with what you think personally. That, you know, that I think is maybe, you know, that may be the hardest, um, that may be the most difficult challenge for sure. Um, and I think, you know, may, maybe my perch is a little bit unique because I have that, I do have a little bit of flexibility in terms of being able to uh, look at things from a little bit different lens um, from that perspective. But yeah, I think that's, that's a real challenge. And certainly I think the closer you get to the social media end of the spectrum, the easier it is to really kind of get get sort of uh, narrowly focused on uh, following people that, that are really agree with you. And I think that is, uh, I think that's a real challenge. And I think, you know, I think it has to be a real conscious effort to kind of get outside of your comfort zone to look for content that uh, hopefully um, uh, gets you to think a little bit differently about uh, different sorts of topics. And I think that's maybe one of the, um, you know, the, I think that's one of the, um, one of the things I like about podcasts in general is I think that's a really interesting way to find an entry to different sorts of opinions and topics, uh, maybe even more so than reading something because, um, you know, whether you're out for a walk or working out or whatever, I think that's sort of, it almost sort of lends itself um, to kind of opening up your brain a little bit by having stuff just come directly into your ears. I don't know, maybe uh, I might be unique in that, but I think that's an interesting way to try to try and find different opinions. And especially now with, you know, the number of podcasts that are out there 
And I think certainly it's a great way to find entry into, uh, you know, just about every book author today is going to go on, you know, kind of go on the podcast circuit and talk about their books. And I think that's a really sort of, uh, you know, you can make a maybe a 30 or 30 or 40 minute commitment to listening this to somebody's ideas um, as opposed to either buying the book or trying to figure out, you know, reading the reviews of the book. And I think that's a really interesting way to sort of get outside your comfort zone. Do you think audio and video are only going to grow as part of what, you know, is out there in general, but also as part of what you're featuring on abnormal returns? I mean, do you think those are probably going to be bigger growth areas than say writing over time? Yeah, I, Certainly. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's absolutely the case, but I think, you know, the, the challenge um, with all of this is, is how to, is how to do that curation. You know, I've been, I've been doing it with, with podcasts for a long time now. And, you know, actually just a couple months ago, I kind of changed, I had to sort of, you know, change tax a little bit. I was kind of getting kind of a little bit far afield from the investing and finance stuff. And, kind of had to rein myself in just because it's so difficult, you know, it's, it's almost more challenging to do audio and video than it is to do print because, uh, you know, it's harder to scan, uh, to scan a podcast than it is to scan a, a poster, an article. And so um, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the challenge with, with audio and video. Um, but, but yeah, no, I think for sure. I think, uh, I think if you are a content producer, if you're not thinking about how to uh, use audio and video in some form or fashion, then I think you're probably missing the boat. You did a interview with Daniel Garoli where you talked about authenticity as being sort of a feature or key that you really like to see in writing. And I, I think a lot of the your peers at Ritholtz do a very good job with that. Um, you know, they're authentic and they don't really they're not trying to sort of sell you something. What they're really trying to do is I think educate first and that builds sort of the Ritholtz brand and maybe people want to work with them or maybe people don't, but at least they're getting authenticity out there. And it kind of plays into Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who's, you know, the host of um, Invest Like the Best, one of the best investing podcasts out there. and one of the top rated ones. He was just on a podcast. Um, I forget the name of it, but he was being interviewed and he was talking about, his method of podcasting and how, you know, he really doesn't, he's not trying to sell anything. He just wants to have great creative conversations with knowledgeable and creative people. And I kind of, I think that authenticity sort of is, you know, that's the common denominator between sort of what you were saying with Daniel and what Patrick was saying with what he really tries to deliver with his podcast. So is that, I mean, is that, is there anything you want to sort of add to that or, or share with us about what you look for in these writings? Yeah, I, th I, I think I, I think that was the acquired podcast, and I think Patrick was talking about how I think the I think the the great kind of the term he used, which I thought was great, was he was kind of like learning in public, you know, bringing people, you know, bringing interesting people on the podcast and asking them sort of open ended questions and really just kind of seeing where the conversation goes. And so I think that is a I think that's sort of you know kind of bringing people on that sort of journey with you, I think is really, um, I think is a, is a really interesting way of thinking about it. But I think the other thing about authenticity is that, you know, I think, you know, I, I think you can fake it for a while, whatever you, whether you're on, you know, whether you're on social media, whether you're uh, doing a podcast or doing, you know, doing something like this or writing, you can kind of fake it for a while. Um, you can kind of put on, maybe put on a different persona for a while, but eventually, 
you're either going to get tired of that and your and sort of your your real sort of viewpoints are going to show through um or it's just not going to sound you know like you said it's going to sound inauthentic in some form or fashion so yeah i think authenticity and so i think so that's one aspect to it is but the other aspect to this is if you're going to be writing on a daily or weekly basis um that's really hard and if you're not writing about stuff that you yourself find interesting or are approaching it in some sort of fashion that um, you find interesting you're just going to stop doing it i mean i can't you know there's so many people who have started uh started you know started a blog started a podcast started you know something else and they start off great for a while um they have some really interesting things to say and then they eventually they just stop doing it because either it's a too hard um or b they just run out of material and so the people that you see who have kind of stuck around who have found this sort of found a cadence in terms of their content creation are really ones who are sort of um scratching their own itch in terms of um uh, their own interests and their own research um, or whatever the case might be and so yeah you can't stick around for a long time if you're not doing stuff that you yourself find interesting if you think you're writing for some sort of theoretical audience out there and writing what you think they're going to read what they want to read or what they want to hear um, chances are uh, you're not, you're not going to be able to keep that up for too long I was going to ask you about what you think it would take to for a new writer to be successful but I think you largely just answered that um you know you have to write what you're interested in you have to probably be disciplined you have to have a long-term commitment to it um you really can't fake it so i think you you answered um that but maybe as sort of a pivot here um do you have any thoughts on sort of distribution of content and what i mean by that is you know you have some people that have decided to basically go the blog route and then you have some writers who have said, you know, I'm going to try to go more the formal, let's say, news distribution route. So, for example, I mean, like with with Josh and Barry, so they both have their own blogs, but yet they're Barry has, uh, you know, the Bloomberg sort of distribution and Josh on CNBC or even like near Kassar, you know, he doesn't have a blog. He writes great stuff, um, but he's going through Bloomberg. So. I mean, I guess, it, do you have any just thoughts on on the decision that someone might kind of think through? And I guess with blogs, you're controlling more of the content. You don't have an editor where if you're going through a more formal site, you know, someone else probably owns the content and they have final say over what is posted. Certainly. I mean, if, you know, if you have the opportunity to widen your distribution net via, um, you know, one of these larger media organizations, I think, you know, I think you'd be a, a fool not to take um that sort of opportunity but i think in the end you have to own your own own and, and i'm using own with kind of quotes around it own your own content you have to have a place somewhere uh on the on the web where people can find you and can find your stuff and whether that's you know um you know that again that's a that's your blog that's your podcast that's your um that's your video stuff people need to be able to find you and you need to have some sort of uh, control over that content. And a lot of people who are, uh, you know, who have some sort of distribution via major media, um, oftentimes you can oftentimes have some redistribution rights for that, for that stuff uh, on your own site. And so um, I think the, the degree to which you can own your own content and people can find you um, or can find you, find an easy way to wherever it is your content might be, I think is important. And I think 
um, you know, that that's sort of, you know, in a certain sense, you know, your content is sort of your, you know, is sort of your baby and you want to be able to uh, kind of keep an eye on it and get people to find it um, in an easy fashion. And so, yeah, I think um, certainly, the you know, uh, if your goal is to get, is to, is to find, you know, is to have your voice heard in as many different places, then, you know, absolutely you should take advantage of that. But I think you should always recognize that, you know, in the end, um, people want, you know, you want to be able to people to find you and to be able to find your stuff and be able to go back through your uh, back catalog, as it were. I want to ask you about content marketing. It seems like the days of asset managers and wealth managers, you know, growing their businesses through a sales team, cold calling people. It seems like those are, are sort of going away. And it seems like content is such an important part now of how you mar market a wealth management or asset management firm. And obviously Ritholtz has been, is sort of set the standard for how that's done. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, do you think that's the future of how asset management businesses are marketed? Um, do, do you think that's the way things are going to be going in the future? Or do, or do you think this is, you know, do you think the other means of, you know, marketing are going to still be very important going forward as well? Well, I, I think, I think a couple of points. I think one is the pandemic has sort of shown that uh, having, having a way of being able to reach uh, not only prospective clients, but your own clients um, in some, in some form or fashion is really crucial. And so when you can't meet with people in, in person, um, you know, that is being able to communicate with people in sort of a one to many sort of way is, is really important. And so uh, I, I think that's, you know, I don't think that's ever going to go away, whether you, whether you think about it as simply client communications, or whether you think about it of marketing, I mean, there's some spectrum on which, you know, where content lies, whether it be from speaking solely, you know, to your existing clients, or all the way to prospective clients, you know, there's sort of a continuum there on where that sort of where that content might hit. Um, but I think, the, uh, you know, I think there's another aspect to it as well, which um, again is, I think, which is something we've already touched on earlier is that it's really difficult to do. Um, you know, I think all of us have read, you know, some asset manager's quarter, quarterly letter to their clients, which starts off, you know, the stock market dropped 2% this quarter due to X, Y, and Z. And here's what we think about how that's going to affect, you know, uh, these certain stocks that we own. And it's like, you know, we've all read this, you know, this is already old news by the time that we've gotten it and, and nobody's going to read it, frankly. And so, um, so you may be, you know, that might be in a certain respect, that might be content creation, but it's something that nobody really wants to read. And so, you know, we've talked about a little bit, talked about authenticity, talking about things that, you know, things that you find interesting. And so I think it's a really difficult challenge for, you know, I think, you know, you read all these articles saying that, you know, advisors and asset management firms, you know, need to up their, you know, their content, you know, their content creation, all of this, which I think is great in theory, but in practice is really difficult and doing it in a way that is um, either, you know, that is both interesting and not so time consuming that it completely drives you away from other aspects of your business, I think is, is a real challenge. And so, uh, but I think certainly content, you know, content in all of its different forms is a really important aspect to how anybody is going to be able to reach their current, their current clientele and also reach, uh, you know, um, potential prospective clients as well. And I might be wrong about this, but I think one of your jobs at Ritholtz has been to sort of streamline the communication, you know, the, ge the general communication with clients from the firm. 
And I'm wondering as part of that, what you've learned, you know, that we have a lot of advisors that listen to the show and I'm wondering what you've learned in terms of how to communicate with clients, the types of things, you know, clients want to hear. Maybe if you could just talk a little bit more about that process of, of communicating with clients and what you've learned about it. I, I think here's, and, and I certainly, I think that Ritholtz wealth management is unique in the sense that we have, uh, you know, sort of, um, all of these different writers and people communicating in all these different ways and all of those different ways are unique and they're actually all important. And so, you know, we've all, you know, sort of Barry, you know, uh, Barry Reynolds was kind of one of the first sort of proto bloggers in this space and has been, you know, and has, and has been around for a long time. And people, certainly a lot of people know about him from, uh, from his blog, but a lot of people come to us and say, look, I heard, you know, I heard this guy on Bloomberg radio and, you know, uh, or, you know, the, a lot of people come to us, they've seen Josh on TV or the people who are listening to uh, Michael and Ben on their podcast. And so I think the one interesting thing is that people find us in all these different and unique ways. And I think, um, I don't think, I don't think certainly in any aspect that I'm trying to streamline it. In fact, I think we're trying to find ways to connect people who uh, we're trying to connect people who read Josh and maybe we want them, to, you know, the, the ideal case would be for them to start listening to Michael and Ben's podcast, Animal Spirits. And so I think, you know, I think the one thing is streamlining. I don't think streamlining works. I think trying to find different ways to communicate with people in trying to find them where they are, I think is really important. And so some people want to listen, some people want to watch. Uh, some people want to read and some people might just find our stuff, you know, we're all, you know, all of us are on Twitter in some form or fashion and some people might find us that way as well. And so, um, you know, I think if, if there were some sort of magic formula that, uh, you know, that there was some sort of some single channel that we could really uh, emphasize or really hit on that would somehow um, would would really drive things, I think we would do it. But I think the thing that we found is that um, communicating with people in, in as many different ways possible is, is sort of really valuable. And I think one of the other advantages is, you know, it, people who read you, people who watch you, they know what you're about before you ever talk to them about becoming a client. You know, we, we found sort of the same thing. And I think that's one of the big, I mean, you may disagree, but I think that's one of the big benefits of content is the ability to get what you believe across before you ever even have a direct one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody. It, that is that is that is absolutely correct, and that would be that would be one of the things that you would hear from our advisors is that by the time somebody has come to come to the firm and said, "Hey, I'm interested in becoming, you know, I'm potentially interested in becoming a client," like you said, they are already sort of in a certain sense pre-qualified. They've already found us in some form or fashion, and ideally, they found us in different ways. Um, and I think that makes the conversation, um, uh, you know markedly easier for uh, to 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 and to take that conversation and advance it. And so, like you said, um, you know, for somebody who is coming, you know, that is that is sort of the what that the, the purpose of that content is really, like we said, it's it's not only serving it's not only serving the purpose of communicating to our existing clientele. And, you know, so those existing clients, when something happening is happening in the market, they are in a certain sense, they know to, well, why don't I go check and see what, uh, what Ben Carlson has written about, you know, this topic. And there's a good chance in the last day or two, he's written about it. So they don't necessarily need to pick up the phone and call their advisor and say, you know, 
what's happening with XYZ, they, you know, they have an opportunity to read that uh, on, on, you know, kind of almost on a real time basis. And so, yeah, I think it serves, you know, to say that to say that content serves only one purpose would be, I think would be short selling it for sure. Do you have any any thoughts on how to communicate with clients during like major periods of panic? And this is sort of a selfish question because I think all of us that are in the business struggle with this. But you know, you have I think Betterment did a study at one point and they were they were testing different ways. You know, do you proactively reach out to people or you know do you wait till they come to you? And you know, by proactively reaching out, sometimes you can induce panic in them yourselves. I'm just wondering if you if you have any thoughts or if there's anything you learned in terms of maybe the best way to communicate with a client when things are going wrong in the market. Well, certainly every every client is unique in that in that respect and so one thing you know saying that one thing would work for one client may not necessarily work for the other but i think that we've found that having a uh, consistent process by which you are communicating your thoughts to the world is i think is is the is certainly the right way to go i think by the you know if if it's the case that by the time you know if um if it's the case that a client is reaching out to you with some sort of concern or fear and in a certain sec, in a certain respect, you kind of haven't done your job because you want to be as proactive as you can, and you don't necessarily have to have all the answers. You know, who had, you know, in March or April of this year, who had all the answers as to what was going to occur? You know, frankly, nobody did. And so, being able to communicate your thoughts at that point in time, in terms of what them, what that, what that range of uncertainty might be, and how that how might how that might affect things, I think is important. And so. Uh, I don't think you have to have all the answers. Nobody does, but I think certainly being able to communicate your thought process in real time gives people um, some measure of comfort that, hey, you know, you guys are thinking about it and you may not have all the answers, but that's certainly uh, that's certainly preferable to having somebody having to pick up the phone or send off a an email because they are uh, concerned and they have and they don't know where you might stand on some sort of uh, topic or issue. For the last question or two, we just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the market here a little bit. But um, I guess what I wanted to ask you is, do you think during times like we went through in February, March and April, like you said, obviously, very few people knew what the outcome was going to be. And a lot of people that were making predictions about this is going to get worse or, you know, it's uh, that, that that was obviously wrong because the markets come back now. It could have gone very differently if maybe the government and the Fed hadn't been so um, aggressive um, with what they did, but it's, that's not how it worked out. But the, I guess the question that I wanted to ask you is, do you think investors, when things like that are happening in the market, whether it's a, a correction or a bear market, regardless of what it's caused by, should they be consuming less information? And could that be better in terms of decision making? Or do you think there's an argument to be trying to become more educated and consume more content? Um, and how do you just, I guess, view that? Um, do you see where I'm going with that question? I would, I would, you know, in that regard, I would probably say less is more in that, in that regard. I think, uh, you know, part of that is just the cadence at which you're, you know, um, consuming content and i think that's i think that's where people really get into trouble is it's certainly easy to you know it's you know the the term that's been used during the pandemic is doom scrolling you know you, you can you can keep going you know whether it's facebook or twitter or instagram whatever you can keep scrolling all day 
and you're not going to come to the end of you know the end of the news or the content or the commentary. So uh, I think in a certain respect, you have to have some sort of uh, you have to put yourself on some sort of information diet. And so I think that's even more important during times of crisis in that sense. And I think um, you know from a you know from a financial markets perspective, you know I think the question that a lot of people have to ask themselves is is what I'm reading um, is that really going to you know is that somehow going to change what I'm going to do with, you know, with my financial situation or with my portfolio, or is that going to affect how, you know, how it is that I live my, you know, kind of my, my day-to-day -day life. And so I think that, you know, in that respect, the pandemic is unique in that respect, in the sense that it kind of crosses over, it crosses over every sort of, sort of news boundary from financial to political, to economic, to personal health sort of situations. That's, you know, so I think, you know, at least this, the last, um, six or seven months have been unique in the sense that the pandemic is really uh, all-encompassing. It really affects every aspect of our lives, um, personal, professional, financial, um, you know, no, you know, so in that respect, that respect, it's really, it is, you know, I, I understand why people can really get, can really kind of go down the rabbit hole um, of content. And I think, you know, the only way to um, offset that is to make a conscious decision um how it is that you're going to approach it and i think um you know that that's sort of the only way to kind of to do it in closing i just wanted to ask you one more question about the asset management and business in general you know it seems like passive investing you know fees are falling the large firms are dominating it seems like those are the trends we're going to be living with in the future and you know it, it also seems like asset management in general is probably not going to be the business that wealth management is just because of the degree of automation that can occur i was just wondering what you think about sort of the landscape of the business in general and where we're headed in the future well you know i think you you certainly hit on you know uh kind of the the main the main issues involved i think you know it's sort of a cliche at this point but software is sort of eating the world and it's eating the man, the investment management world as well. Um, all of those, you know, a lot of these things that uh, used to be sort of done on a one-off or personal sort of basis, a lot of those are gonna get automated. And, you know, uh, I don't think there's any way around around that. I think we're just kind of, we're sort of getting, we're just kind of getting started in some of, and, you know, in some of those respects, I think, you know, the uh, all the algorithms that people are using are only going to get better. They're going to get smarter. Um, a lot of the things that people do today are going to get taken over by uh, going to get taken over by software. And that's that's happening in all aspects of the world. And there's really no reason to believe that that wouldn't sort of bleed over into the financial world as well. Uh, I think, you know, uh, I think the, you know, the, the wealth management business, like you said, as you make a distinction between asset management and wealth management is that wealth management, you still have this sort of intersection of um, all of these things in a, in a person's financial life, which to date are still not, you know, which you still can't automate. Um, but a lot of, the, but some of those aspects, um, certainly on the um, portfolio management side, a lot of those are getting automated, you know, are already getting automated, whether it be, uh, you know, you know, rebal you know, rebalancing somebody's portfolio or tax optimization or any, you know, these things that uh, people used to do five or 10 years ago uh, for which they were paid, um, you know, are, are, being, are, are being automated away. And so what's being left behind are those things that are um, more challenging on a, um, uh, more challenging and basis to deal with. So, great, Tadas. This has been a 
fantastic conversation um, as I knew it would be. We want to thank you for jumping on with us today. If people want to learn more about um, where to find you, abnormal returns, where should they uh, go to get more information? Go to um, just type in abnormal returns, abnormalreturns.com on Twitter at abnormal returns, um, or you can find us all at, uh, at ritholdswealth.com. So good stuff. Thanks for joining thank us. You, we Tadash. appreciate it. Thank you. It was great. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carvino. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.